How many of you are hopeful this morning? Good. Well, I'm happy to be with you again. It's It's been a while, and uh, I always enjoy opening the Word with brothers and sisters, encouraging them in the Scriptures. I guess I should get out my sermon notes, or we're going to be in trouble here. So as many of you know, I'm a hospice chaplain, right? And And that job comes with certain risks. It's a difficult job to watch people die. Uh, But, you know, I I can watch people die without food and water. But what's harder for me to watch is somebody die without hope. Hope is essential uh, for human life. And for us as believers, it's even more essential. And yet, so often as Christians, we rarely talk about hope. I, I talk with many people, and they often express faith, but they don't really talk about hope. And I'll bet if I were to ask you the difference between faith and hope, you'd probably have a hard time explaining it. So I thought I would take a minute just to try to do that for you, just to try to help you along and encourage you in that. Uh, remember, one of the most famous Bible passages is uh, 1 Corinthians 13. That's known as the, the what chapter? The love chapter, that's right. And why do they call it the love chapter? Because he kind of defines what love is. And, and in the course of a, in a discourse about the use of spiritual gifts, he is actually arguing for the superiority of love over the gifts. And as he works his way through that argument, he gets to the end and he says, now, these three abide, right? Faith hope and love, but the greatest of these is love, right? Well, it doesn't mean the other two are not important. It just means that as we go off into eternity, the only thing we're going to take with us is the love, right? That the faith and hope are for this life, and they're important for believers in this life, right? Now, faith is... Primarily past tense, right? When you think about it, we have faith in what? Well, we have, we have faith in the promises of God. We have faith in what Christ has done for us. Uh, biblically, the word pistis, uh, when it relates to God, is the idea of a conviction that God exists. Uh, he's the creator and the sustainer of life and the ruler of all things. And that he's a provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Christ, right? That's, that's our faith. That's what we believe. That's what we have faith in. Hope, on the other hand, instead of being past tense, is more future-oriented, future right? And when we say we have hope in something, what we're saying is a joyful, confident expectation of eternal salvation, We're looking forward to that time when we won't have to deal with sin and the sorrows of this life anymore. We hope in the future. Now, faith and hope won't be necessary when our salvation is finally realized, right? But for the time being, it is very necessary. And so this morning, since it's so necessary, I want to talk to you about hope 
And uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, we'll look at verses 18 to 26 this morning, and we'll try to get our arms around hope. Now, being a hospice chaplain is dangerous, as I said, and I'll tell you a story. I, <clears throat> I went over to a woman's house, and I was sitting talking with her on the sofa, and she was in a, in a chair, and, and as we began to talk, I noticed a, a bowl of peanuts on the, on the coffee table. And so I start, you know, she said I could help myself, so I ate some peanuts, and, and I'm eating a few peanuts, and, and before I knew it, to my horror, the entire bowl of peanuts was gone. And I looked over her, and I apologized profusely that I had eaten all of her peanuts, and and she said, don't worry about it. She said, that's okay. At, at my age, I don't have all my teeth anymore, and all I can do is suck the chocolate off of them. <laughs> you'll, get it, you'll get it later if you haven't got it. It's a dangerous job. It's a dangerous job. So Matthew 9, verses 18 to 26. Uh, so the reason I told you that story is I hope that never happens again. That's, uh, that's, uh, we're talking about hope this morning. And, uh, Matthew 9, 18 to 26. Uh, while he was saying these things to them, there's actually the word behold in the text. If you don't see it there, it's the word behold. Behold. A synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, leave for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And this news spread throughout all the land. Now this story, it's an interesting thing. If you read the commentaries, these Two miracles are compressed together, and in the commentaries, they treat them like, like they're one story. And, and it really struck me as I was uh, studying this passage, because it, it seems like they're two different miracles, but the gospel writers clump them together. And it's hard to understand why, and I hope maybe I can explain that to you today. So this morning, we're going to look at two miracles that should cause us to actively hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's very simple, a very simple outline. There's obviously two miracles here taking place, uh, one on the way to the other, uh, one interrupted, if you will, by the other. And uh, this story, by the way, uh, these, these events are so 
important that they're actually repeated in the in two of the other gospels. Uh, you could reference uh, Mark 5:21 to 43, and also Luke 8. Uh, 40 to 56 and i'll be i'll be jumping back and forth between them just to try to fill things out you know the gospels are called synoptics which means they're seen the same in other words um, they're the same stories but they're different perspectives that are visualized uh, visualizing the same event so it'd be like three different people witnessing a car accident and telling you what they saw from their perspective okay So we're going to look at it from all three perspectives. So the first miracle that we're going to look at here is what I'm saying is resurrection from death. And I appreciate the scriptures that were read this morning that that focused on the resurrection. uh, And we'll be talking about that in a little bit. But resurrection from death. uh, And while this is not the first raising of the dead that Matthew records, um, it's the first... Let me say that a different way. This is the first raising of the dead that Matthew records, but it's not the first raising of the dead that Jesus performed. Okay? So that's important for us to understand. If you look over at Luke 7, 11 to 17, remember Jesus raised the widow's son at Nain. And why is that important? Because, well, this, this ruler is coming and he's going to bow down at Jesus' feet and he's going to ask him to raise the dead. Well, why would he do such a thing? Well, because Jesus had already done it somewhere else. That's the point. Okay? And chronologically, just so you know, uh, the Luke passage occurs before this one. And in fact, these two miracles, they, they don't take place until after Matthew 13. Chronologically. And so, Matthew has taken them and he's arranged his gospel in a certain way to make a certain point. And hopefully uh, I can make that clear to you today. So there's three parts to this miracle of resurrection from the death. And, and let's look at the first one there. It's on your handout. It's, it's called the Astounding Request, verses 18 to 19. So while he was saying these things to them, behold, that tips us off that, that it's something big. Look at this. Focus on this. Look, reader, this has happened. And it's a very important event. And, and what happens? A synagogue official, right? These people who are hostile to Jesus, a ruler, if you will, in the eyes of the nation, somebody who's well-respected in the community, while everybody else is sort of pulling away from Jesus, they're rejecting him, he's rejected in his own hometown, this synagogue official comes running up to Jesus and he prostrates himself before him. The word proskuneo, it it carries the idea of more what you would see in an Islamic temple. Somebody somebody on on the ground prostrating themselves, worshiping him. This is not just, uh, you know, hey Jesus, I I need to ask you a question. This is falling before him and, and prostrating himself before him. Mark tells us that the official's name over in Mark 5.22 is actually... Jairus. Jairus. So we know who this guy is. We know his name. And Jairus uh, says, what? My daughter has just died. My little baby girl. I mean, uh, you kind of lose some of the flavor of the story just by how short and, 
and succinct it is, but, but this is his daughter. Uh, Luke tells us that his daughter had just died in verse 18. And Mark says that she's at the point of death. Now, you hear all these stories about, um, you know, conflicting accounts, right? And that uh, apparent contradictions. So uh, does the Bible contradict itself here? No. It's easily explained by Mark's account over in 535. The issue is that when Jairus came to Jesus, his daughter hadn't died yet. She was at the point of death. But while he was approaching Jesus, somebody came running up to him and said, your daughter has just died. Okay, and so he gets the news while he's there with Jesus. So Matthew chose only to record the latter part of their conversation after Jairus had been informed of his daughter's death. Now, if you go over to Luke's gospel, we find out that this is his only daughter. It's his only daughter. And he also tells us that she was about 12 years old. So this was his little baby girl. This was his 12-year-old daughter. And so you can imagine, this man is desperate, right? He's just lost his daughter, his only daughter, and he's heartbroken. He's heartbroken. He's, he's beside himself with grief, he's, and he's hopeless. He can't raise his daughter from the dead. Modern medicine at the time couldn't do anything for her, so, so he goes to the only place where he could possibly go, right? He had heard there was a man around who could raise people from the dead, right? This Jesus guy. So what does he do? He runs to Jesus. He falls at his feet. He worships him and he begs him to come to his house and resurrect his daughter. Now, the text is, is interesting here, right? It, it doesn't say Jesus even said anything to him. It just says Jesus followed him. He just, lead the way, lead the way, let's go. And he just follows him. And the disciples follow Jesus. And the crowds begin to congregate, and they're thinking, yeah, we're going to see a miracle, right? And the buzz starts, and the crowds gather. And as they're on their way to Jairus' house, Matthew interrupts the narrative with another miracle. Another miracle happens here, and uh, we'll get to that one later, but it's a woman with a hemorrhage, a woman with a hemorrhage. Now, why is this request astounding? Well, look at the text with me. It's, 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 first of all, it's a, it's a synagogue official. You have to understand that Jesus and the leadership of Israel were not buddies, right? Remember, we've been looking at John 3. How did Nicodemus come to Jesus? Under cover of night, right? Because he was afraid of getting kicked out of the leadership of Israel, and he was at the top, right? So this chasm between Jesus and the leadership of Israel is growing ever wider, and as this is growing, this guy comes up in the middle of a crowd with all the disciples in public in the daytime, and he drops to Jesus' feet and worships him. 
That's, that's a statement, right? That's a statement. And remarkably, the most important thing is that he asks him to do what? Just, if you wouldn't mind, raise her from the dead. <laughs> now, I've, I've been in hospice for a while. I've seen dead people, okay? I've walked in the room right when they've died. I've been in the room when they've died. And when the spirit flies, they're dead. Okay? And dead people don't breathe. They don't do anything. They just lay there. Right? I've seen dead people. And to ask Jesus to raise somebody from the dead is not only saying reanimate the flesh. We were talking about this the other day. But call her spirit back. And put that spirit back in that body and bring it back to life. No small order, right? No problem. I'd be happy to do that for you. But as I said, based on his prior raising of the widow's son at Nain in Luke 7, and also um, the healing of the centurion's son over in Luke 7, it doesn't appear to be all that far-fetched that Jesus can do this, right? So it's an astounding request, but, but this man is desperate, and this is his only hope. This is it. This is his last shot before he buries his child. Now, I would say the only mistake in this man's thinking here is that he thinks Jesus needs to be at the house to do it, right? Right? Jesus could heal people from a distance like that if he wanted to. But he figures, no, Jesus needs to be there. Well, let's look at the response, right? So Jesus follows this man. And, and starting in verse 23, it says, When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he began to say, Depart, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. Look at that response. They laughed at him. She's asleep. She's dead, Jesus, right? She's dead. Look, she's not breathing. Misdiagnosis. Now, now when Jesus arrives at, at the house, there's mourners, there's flute players. They're already there, Right? They just found out that she died, and they've already, they've already descended on the scene. And, and largely that's because in Jewish society, um, you have to understand, this is a very arid climate. And what happens when it's hot outside and somebody dies? They smell, right? They decompose. And so the flute players uh, required to get there right away, and everybody was required to have mourners. That was standard practice. You call in the mourners, people would wail, they would cry, it would, it would be a, quite a scene. Um, and you've probably heard, you know, the oh, la, 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 kind of a thing, right? That's what it would be. They'd be wailing, they'd be pulling their hair, uh, and then you'd have the flute players playing dirges, and, and Jesus comes in and there's just this whole ruckus going on, right? All these people in the house, and what does he do? He tells him, get out. Get out. 
She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Now, is this a misdiagnosis? Well, no. Jesus knows that she's dead. He's speaking metaphorically. It's a euphemism for death, right? When somebody sleeps, uh, they will rise again. Some half dead like me in the morning, but they will rise again. And so Jesus walks in, and the response of the crowd is to laugh at Jesus, to mock him. It's an imperfect verb here, and the idea is that it's an ongoing action, meaning they didn't just start to laugh at him. They started to laugh at him, and they kept on laughing at him to the point of scorn. They were mocking him. They were making fun of him. What an idiot, right? What a fool. What's he think he's going to do? They even suggested that Jairus stop bothering Jesus because she died uh, over in Mark uh, 5.35. It's too late to do anything now, Jesus. She's gone. Hopeless. It's hopeless. But Jairus is just hoping against hope that his little girl can come back to him. So we have an astounding request, we have an antagonistic response, and we have an astonishing result. If you look at the text in verses 25 to 26, when the crowd had been put out, don't let the door hit you on the way out, uh, he entered and took her by the hand and the girl arose and this news went out into all the land. Talk about an understatement, huh? He takes her by the hand and the girl arose. Jesus just raised the dead. Jesus sends everyone away. He enters the room where the dead girl's body was. Obviously, at the back of the house. He had to walk through the crowd. Uh, Over in Luke 8, it tells us that he had Peter, John, and James with him, as well as the girl's father and mother. Now, you have to understand, Matthew's writing to who? Who's his audience? Jews. Matthew's writing to Jews. It's primarily a Jewish audience. And raising the dead is something that only the likes of Elijah and Elisha have done in the past. Right? Raising the dead is no small miracle. You look at 1 Kings 17, 21-22... Elisha over in 2 Kings 4, 33-35. And these men became renowned in Israel for doing this type of miracle. And now here's Jesus. And now here's what, where the crux of the story is, really. Think about it with me. If this is a primarily Jewish audience, it's hard to determine what would be more astonishing to a Jew that Jesus would raise somebody from the dead or that he would touch a corpse and thereby defile himself in the Levitical law. I mean, think about it. You read the book of Numbers, uh, verse 19, or chapter 19, verses 11 to 22, the book of Haggai, 
Chapter 2, verse 13. Somebody touched a corpse. They would be unclean for seven days. They'd have to go through ritual purification again. They'd have to miss the Sabbath if it were seven days. But, but think about it. This is the one who is above the law, right? This is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of all. He doesn't play by the same rules. He can touch the dead and not be defiled. And in fact, I think, if you look at the text, it doesn't just say he touched her like, like you see these televangelists, right? Heal, rise. <laughs> Where does he touch her? He grabs her hand, right? The compassion, the tenderness to hold the hand of a dead person. Right? He took her by the hand and and the little girl, it says, she arose. This is astonishing. And it's not just astonishing that the dead has been raised. It's astonishing in the manner in which he did it. See, the Holy One of Israel could not be contaminated by sin and death. He, he, in a sense, he touched the unclean, which is what we needed him to do, right? And notice in the text, it says, this news went out into all the land. News in the Greek is the, is the word famos. He became famous. Instant celebrity status. <laughs> Now, this is a side note. This is an excursus. I just have to say this. Um, There's a lie swirling around in Christendom today that says that you have to have enough faith to be healed, right? You have to plant a seed of faith in order to be healed. Send your money to me and I'll heal you. Uh, It's a lie. It's a lie. Obviously, Jairus' daughter couldn't place faith in Christ, right? And, and to say that everybody who dies, dies because of a lack of faith is just a lie. It's just a lie and it's just not true. Everybody will die. Unless, of course, the Lord returns and we're changed instantly, right? But if everybody dies, what would that necessitate? That everybody dies unbelievers, Right? Because if you have to have enough faith to be healed and you're not healed, what does that tell you? It's a lie. It's a lie. Don't believe it for a second. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe you will die one day? Have you thought about it much? You will. And I've, I've stood like next to a lot of open graves, a lot of open caskets. And I've looked in there and I've thought to myself, where is their hope? And, and it's a whole lot easier if I can put somebody in the ground that I know they hoped in the resurrection. You know, I know they had hope in Christ. 
If they didn't, it's a lot harder to say goodbye. Right? That's why when you read your New Testament, resurrection was a... It was central to the apostolic preaching of the cross. If you read the book of Acts, we just read Acts 2 this morning. You, you read through the book of Acts, Acts 13. Um, uh, you get Stephen's sermon. All these things about resurrection. Uh, even Paul's sermon over on Mars Hill. Uh, God has fixed the day, right? When he's going to when he's going to judge the world and he's appointed the man who he's going to judge it through having raised him from the dead, right? Having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. It was central to the apostolic preaching resurrection. Why? Because that's our hope, right? And not zombie apocalypse, not that kind of raising, (laughs) We're going to be glorified in new bodies, right? And we're going to spend a thousand years in the kingdom with Christ. And then we're going to spend the rest of eternity with God and Christ. That's where our hope is. It's, Bruce was talking about it this morning, right? It's, Bruce, is, it's not this world, right? It's not this world. It's not this stuff. It's there. It's there. So resurrection from the dead. The second miracle is restoration from defilement. Go verses 20 to 22. And this is the one that interrupts the story. And in verse 20 it says, And behold, there's another behold there. A woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I shall get well. So, so here Jesus is. He's on his way to resurrect Jairus, uh, resurrect Jairus's daughter. Crowd presses in on him. Everybody's compressed. It's like a mosh pit at a concert. And, and this woman who's been suffering for, from a hemorrhage for 12 years reaches out and grabs the corner of his garment or probably his prayer shawl. Now, this is a side note just for interest. It is interesting to think on some of these things, right? How long had she been suffering from the hemorrhage? Twelve years. How old was Jairus' daughter? I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but it's interesting, right? Who knows? A lot of people have speculated uh, about the connection. I think it's just coincidence. But the background, this, this illness, uh, it's essentially a nonstop menstrual cycle. Ladies, you think you got a bad 12 years at this time period when there weren't the supplies in the grocery store that you might need. They didn't have doctors. There were no OBGYNs back then. They were just, I mean, let's face it, it was probably quite barbaric. It was, it was probably quite difficult for this woman. I, I can't imagine being in her condition. Mark tells us that this poor lady 
It says she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. She grew worse. Everything she had, she gave, and she got worse. Luke adds a little more color. He says she could not be healed by anyone. So to make matters worse, this is not just a physical condition. This is also ceremonial defilement. A woman who had a discharge or was on her menstrual cycle uh, at the time, uh, she is continually ceremonially defiled to the people around her, to the temple. She's, she's not allowed to go anywhere near that stuff. Leviticus 15, verses 19 to 33. Additionally, if she touched anyone or anything, that all became defiled too. Seven days again. That, that person or that thing that she touched uh, would remain defiled until the end of the day. And so now imagine, imagine if she's married. What must that be like for her husband? If he touches her, he can't go to the temple, right? He can't worship. He's unclean. She's unclean. They can't go to crowds. And yet think about it with me. Where is she right now when we're hearing this story? Remember I said the crowds are pressing in, right? And where is she? She's right there in the middle of that crowd, clutching at the garment of Christ, defiling everyone and everything in her path. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. Talk about taboo, right? I mean, at this time, most teachers would avoid touching women altogether in order to avoid even the possibility of contaminating themselves. So this woman, I mean, think about her situation. She could not touch. She could not be touched. If she was married, she's probably now divorced. And she's been completely marginalized by Jewish society. She's desperate. She's desperate. And her only hope is that if I can just get to Jesus, I know I'll be healed. It's my last shot. It's all I've got. It's within her grasp. Just let me touch his garment. Let me touch his garment and I'll be healed. Literally saved. I'll be saved. Saved from this horrific condition, this horrific predicament. Second piece of this, you notice Jesus' display of power. Verse 22 says, Jesus turning and seeing her said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once, the woman was made well. Jesus did, in, a, in the blinking of an eye, 
what 12 years of doctors could not do for this woman. She presses in. She grabs the garment. She renders even Jesus defiled, right? In the eyes of Jewish society, she's now touched Jesus, right? Mark 5.29, Luke 8.44, she was healed instantly and completely. Mark tells us that the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her afflictions. Mark adds a little more color to the story. He says that Jesus perceived in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth. He felt a power drain. That's interesting, huh? So he turns around and he says, who touched me? (laughs) And I I like the disciples' response here. They're a little snippy with him, right? (laughs) I think they're irritated by the crowds. and, And they said, Jesus, you see this crowd? And you want us to tell you who touched you? Really? But the woman comes to Jesus and she sort of fesses up, right? She fesses up and she she fell down before him and told him what she did. Here we go again. She's she's worshiping him. And over in Mark 5.33, Jesus reassures her, that her display of faith in him had resulted in her healing. And don't miss the compassion here, too. He calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. He's not angry with her at all. He calls her daughter, right? He takes the little girl by the hand. He calls this woman daughter, the compassionate king, right? The compassionate king who cares for his people. He's not even upset that this unclean woman has just defiled him. He's just compassionate. So after 12 years, this woman is free of this disease just by touching his garment. It's amazing. What a remarkable display of power over sickness, right? This is... Though, think about it with me, this is what Messiah was supposed to bring with him when he presented himself to the nation, right? Isaiah 53.5 He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. When Messiah came to the nation, he was supposed to bring healing, cleansing, right? Now, here's where this turns a little bit, and I I want you to think about this a little bit deeper with me. Why are these two miracles showing up in the narrative now? Why did Matthew move them from after chapter 13 all the way forward to chapter 9 and take them chronologically out of order. Well, see, Matthew is, is painting a picture, if you will. He's telling a story. He's not so interested in the chronology as he is the storytelling. And the point is 
that the king has presented himself to the nation in the first of his five discourses, Matthew 5 through 7. He's performed all kinds of staggering miracles which prove his, his deity, his authority, his messianic credentials. He's called the nation to repentance, to repentance, chapter 4, verse 17. And, and he's identified himself as the bridegroom and told the nation to celebrate his arrival and no longer mourn, chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. Matthew is painting a picture that is presenting Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah the long-awaited king, and he's saying, Israel, behold your king. Everything from the Old Testament is culminating together, and this man has demonstrated himself in so many ways to be the king that this is the capstone here. These two miracles are, in fact, if you will, living illustrations of what Messiah was supposed to bring with him. And what he was supposed to offer to the nation of Israel as a whole. And that was restoration from defilement, right? Cleansing, resurrection to life and cleansing from defilement. That's what the nation was promised in the Old Testament. That when Messiah came, he would would bring life through resurrection, and he would bring restoration through healing. You just read Isaiah 53 and 54. It's healing, and it's the restoration of the nation. And as we know, the nation rejected the offer, right? And then you get to the book of Acts, and what? They reject it a second time. Peter says, hey, if you would just repent, the the times of refreshing would come upon you. Acts 3.19, but they rejected it. And so the gospel ended up going in an unprecedented turn of events to the Gentiles. So what do we do with all this? I mean, the message is about hope. Well, Jesus came to heal those who were defiled and unclean, right? The Bible is very clear. While we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us, right? Now, Jesus didn't just die as an example for us, but we are to emulate our Savior and his mission in the world, and we ought to extend the gospel to those who are defiled with sin, right? And in fact, we're all defiled with sin, so why not? (laughs) We're ambassadors, right? But, but think about it with me. Jesus did for us what nobody else on earth was qualified to do for us. And that is, he touched the unclean. Right? Because there was nobody who was clean but him. Nobody righteous but him. So I believe in a similar way, we must view the world, as you will, as our mission field, and we must touch the unclean. And it's not just standing on a corner holding up a sandwich board 
saying repent or die, right? That's not going to save anybody. It's, it's Notice the compassion of Jesus. He touched with his hand, right? Would you walk up to a homeless person and hold their hand? Would you hold the hand of a dead person or one who's dying? It's challenging. But Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah told the nation of Israel, he said, listen, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, which, by the way, are menstrual cloths. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's not a one of us who can stand above the fray and say, I'm without sin, right? We're all sinners. And we have been showered with mercy and grace and compassion and hope. We have the gospel. Right? And we need to touch the world that is unclean. Now, these miracles, think about it, they're really the gospel in micro, aren't they? Isn't this the gospel? I mean, isn't this the gospel? Jesus came to those who were defiled by sin and spiritually dead, right? And he offered them cleansing and life. He came to you and he came to me and he offers us the same thing he offered to Israel. Cleansing from your sin and life. First Corinthians 1611, right? He, he offers cleansing from the defilement of sin and restoration with your creator. The only hope for our cleansing from sin is Christ. He offers life to those who are spiritually dead. Right? We've talked about regeneration. The quickening of the Spirit. How, if I were... Let's put it this way. If there were a dead trout here and you were to say, raise yourself, could it? No, it, it requires the Spirit's intervention, right? We're, we're all spiritually dead until we're made alive by the Spirit. And sin is a, sin is a death sentence for those without Christ. He is the life, and those who are in Him are in that life. John 1, 1 through 5. He is the life, and the life is the light of men. And he offers hope. Hope for the hopeless, which is the point of our sermon today. He offers hope. 1 Peter 1, 3. Hope for the hopeless. Let me ask you this morning, are you hopeless? Or do you have hope? 
when push comes to shove, when your health crashes, if you're told you've got two weeks to live, do you have hope? Charles Spurgeon said, Do not look to your hope, but to Christ, the source of your hope. So let me ask you a question. Will you reject your compassionate king this morning like Israel did? Or will you embrace him as your only hope in this life and the next? It's almost like he's extending his hand to you and he's saying, let me just reach out and touch your hand. Are you going to let him touch you? Or are you going to slap his hand away and reject him? You know, it's, it's no accident, if you look at the narrative, it's no accident that what actually follows in the narrative, according to Matthew is the healing of blind people. Why do you think that is? It's part of the story, right? They now see. Where once they were blind, they now see who Jesus Christ really is. And they follow him. It's no accident. If you see who Jesus Christ is, really, then follow him in faith, and in hope. Let's pray. Our Father, we um, can only express what life was like before Christ. The hopelessness, the desperation that we felt. Dead unable to save ourselves, unable to do anything to reconcile ourselves to our God. Without hope and without God in the world, we as Gentiles had nothing to commend ourselves to you. But our Father, you took the initiative. You sent your Son from the throne room of eternity to us, the undefiled one, the pure one, the beautiful Christ sent him to us that he might die the death that we deserved, that he might live the life that we could never live to qualify himself to die that death, that he would take upon himself all of our sin, all of our defilement, that he would take it to the grave with him, and that three days later he would be raised again to newness of life, and that when he raised us, When he was raised up, he raised us with him to newness of life. Father, we, as the Apostle Paul says, have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places now in Christ Jesus. And we are trophies of your grace. Help us now to live as those with hope, not just with faith in the things that have happened in the past, but with hope for the future. Hope in the resurrection, hope in eternal life, that we would be witnesses to those around us of that hope. Lord, take your word and press it deep within our hearts. Cause us to trust in you evermore, to rely on you, 
to pin our hopes, as it were, in the future on Christ. For we have no other. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.